Roger that, Houston. All systems five by five. But what if there is no tomorrow? There wasn't one today. Fascinating. Get away from her, you bitch! Welcome to the Nerdfest podcast. Today we've got Ian McLaughlin, Dan Watkins, Peter Johnson, John Farling, and I'm Hazel Burton. Um, a warm welcome back to Mr. Ian McLaughlin. Hello. How are things? All better? Yes. Hungover. <laughs> yes. Join the club. I had a show last night. <laughs> Hungover. But it's super great to be back. I think, he, uh, Peter, you're the only one that was home before 2am. <laughs> oh, yeah. I, I had a boring night last night. Yeah. So on the show today, we have got a brand new feature called Nerd Court, whereby the TV show Lost gets put before judge and jury. And on the prosecution is Ian, and defending it is Dan. And we've got some nerdy recommendations based on stuff we have seen recently. Stoof. 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 <laughs> stoof we have stoofed. <laughs> stoof. <laughs> Two use. <laughs> Let's do some nerd recommendations. Who's seen something recently they'd like to talk about on the podcast? I have. Uh, my partner Amy and I, hello Amy, who is now a listener to the podcast, uh, we were down in that London recently, uh, saw some very good plays and shows, including Hamilton, which I may talk about on every episode forever because it's amazing. But we <laughs> saw a very nerdy exhibition at the British Library, Harry Potter, A History of Magic. And as... Listeners will know I am a bit of a Potter fan. What was the uh, score on the episode, the Harry Potter quiz episode? That's not important. We had fun. I won. I know that much. Um, (laughs) But this exhibition has some of J.K. Rowling's original writings, first drafts, medieval manuscripts and books with actual magic spells and depictions of witches and instructions on how to make a philosopher's stone and objects from Victorian cauldrons all the way back to 3,000-year-old Chinese prophecy bones and scrolls. So if you're into history or magic or Harry Potter or a combination of the above, it is incredible. However, it is completely sold out for the rest of its run. Oh. Oh. (laughs) But uh, there is a very, very good book that accompanies it, which is widely available, and that has got images and descriptions of everything you see in the exhibition and is well worth a read. It's really good. Well, um, me and my partner Louise are going down to London next month and she was very looking forward to going to see that exhibition that you've now told us we can't get tickets for, so thank you for that. That's all right. At least you won't have to break it to her when you get there and find no, it sold she'll out. just listen to this podcast and that's easier than telling her in person. That's my, <laughs> that's Tell my what you plan. do. You go in and you get the invisibility cloak and then you put uh, it on and then you can see the exhibition. <gasps> That is my favourite part of the exhibition. They had an empty display case with an invisibility cloak inside it. Nice. If you had an invisibility cloak and you could go anywhere in the British Museum, what book would you steal? Ooh. And the problem is they have every book. Mm-hmm. By law, they have every book published in the UK. Um, I would go for something like a Shakespeare first folio. You can't go wrong with that. No. Well, you can when you're up in jail trying to sell it on eBay. That's true, but I don't have eBay, Okay, so I'm fine. <laughs> um, I saw The Post a couple of days ago, oh. uh, which is a Spielberg-directed um, film set in the Vietnam era. It's got uh, Tom Hanks and Meryl Streep in it, and it deals with the Pentagon Papers, um, which basically was an internal investigation to show how uh, everybody in the government knew that they were going to lose the Vietnam War and had known for decades, but they still went in, and it was uh, yeah, very re- revelatory. Is that a word? Revelatory? <laughs> Revelatory. Um, um, so it was a really, really good, good historical film. Meryl Streep is 
excellent in it. It's hard to out outshine Tom Hanks on the screen, but she manages um, to do it. And she is basically the U United States' first female publisher. She owns a, the Washington Post and she's just um, kind of put it on the stock market. So she's kind of balancing the interests of the, stock, of the shareholders with publishing this incredible news that, um, you know, there's lots of sensitivities around it. There's, you know, that's still going on in, in Vietnam. Is it going to put them in danger? But any other, you know, the other stage, it's, it's important news for um, people to hear about. And this, and it's not a spoiler to say that, that they do obviously publish the Pentagon Papers, but the scene, and it goes right down to the wire, you know, it's a, a, like a midnight decision to go and publish. And she's on the phone and the moment she goes, go, 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 go for it is really quite a captivating moment. So I'd, I'd recommend that. And it's, it feels quite contemporary <laughs> because we're obviously dealing with uh, issues at the moment, dealing with the government and uh, their relationship with the press. And there's a, a line that I really liked in the post. Um, we can't have an administration dictating to us our coverage just because they don't like what we print about them in our newspaper, which I thought was intriguing because it's so contemporary. Now, apparently um, they didn't change a single line in the script as more and more news emerged from the current White House. Uh, they kept it exactly the same, but it's just interesting how there's a direct correlation with what's going on there. But uh, yeah, really great performances, really good script, superbly directed, uh, recommend it. Is there any, any robots or aliens in it? Explosions? Explosions? Um, none of the above, right. unfortunately, but uh, you know, it doesn't right. necessarily need them all the time. And um, what day of the week did you go and see the post? Uh, I went on a Friday. Ah, very sensible. Why is that? No post on Sundays. Oh, God. <laughs> Hashtag Vernon Dursley. Would you say the post was first class? Damn it, I should have thought of that. <laughs> did, you have, did you have a cigarette after? I had a post. Big... A post. Oh, God. Post, post. cigarette. <laughs> Never mind. Post cigarette. <laughs> <clears throat> okay, um, I've not seen very much this week because I've been very busy, so I'm going to recommend a book. Um... It's a book I was actually reading before Marquis Smith, who was the singer in The Fall, died this week. Uh, coincidentally, I was reading this book. It's called The Big Midweek, Life Inside the Fall, by Steve Hanley, who was the bass player for The Fall from 1978 until the late 90s, when he left following one bust up too many with a singer. And if you want to read something about what it's actually like to be in a mid-ranking, not famous, but not struggling band like the realities of touring and the arguments of the day-to-day -day life. Um, it's one of the best accounts of that sort of lifestyle that I've read, and it's really, really good fun. Um, Marky Smith, obviously, is an interesting character, so there's lots of anecdotes and stories there, and it's uh, just a good, fun read. I've never been a massive fan of The Fall. I, know I, did, I do like um, Spoiled Victorian Child. Mm -hmm. I think it's a very good song. But apart from that, it just really annoys me. I think that was part of the part rationale, of the, wasn't it? Yeah. I watched uh, well a few films this week, but one of the, one of the odder ones was Happy Death Day. Has anyone seen that? Is this Groundhog Day with death? Yeah, it's kind of a slasher movie combined with Groundhog Day, which uh, where the idea is someone gets um, someone gets killed and then the day resets and they keep trying to stop themselves getting killed. So wasn't, it, wasn't there a Tom Cruise film that was very similar to that? Uh, of Tomorrow. Yes, yes Tomorrow. it's quite different in. Terms of feel from that. Uh, Edge of Tomorrow, I think, is a great film, mm. uh, and it's good to know they're doing a, a follow-up movie it to that. It did terribly at the cinema, didn't it? Then picked up on DVD. They couldn't decide what to call it, and it, you know mm. that weird mm. "Live Die Repeat" was it called in America? Was one of them, yeah. yeah. 
Um, it's based on All You Need Is Kill, I yeah. think. Um, is, is that a novel or a comic? It's a, a manga, I think, yeah. yeah. I think one of the titles was The Shortest Action Hero. <laughs> 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 Did anyone see uh, Tom Cruise on the Graham Norton show on Friday? No. He no. came along with his uh, Mission Impossible 6 posse, um, Superman and... Uh, the others um and they showed a clip of him jumping uh, onto another building like there's a gap and he jumps onto another building and uh, he breaks his ankle and you see the moment where his ankle just kind of flips back oh. but yeah it's pretty gruesome and uh, but tom cruise being tom cruise um you see him still gla- uh, grab onto the building step up and then run past the camera even when he's got a, like an ankle hanging off he's like <laughs> My, my main problem with Tom Cruise is he's made Simon Pegg creepy. Have you noticed, like, Simon Pegg went from being, like, this nice, cheery, geeky everyman to slightly weird, possibly Scientology-related things shortly after making his first film with Tom Cruise, and now he just seems to follow behind Tom Cruise like his little servant. <laughs> I have this theory that the Imp- Mission Impossible films are now just an elaborate way of trying to kill Tom Cruise. <laughs> 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 All they do is each, they say, oh, we've got another film, we still haven't killed yeah. him, we've got to think of something yeah. we're going to make it's him like do this time. like we literally time. put him on the side of a cliff and left him there and he did not die, even though he jumped from one cliff to the other. We have He's to the cockroach of the movie industry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. the, um, was it Ghost Protocol where yes. he runs down the Burj Khalifa? Yes. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know how anybody can do that, but Tom Cruise did and lived, yeah. which is impressive. Cockroach, fire jets, told you. Yep. Racing yeah. cars. And make a good cocktail. Yeah. <laughs> Can't look after Dustin Hoffman, though. Yeah. Um, but, uh, I mean, I'm not sure I'd wholly recommend it. I think, it might, I think it's Bloomhouse, maybe, uh, mm-hmm. who make a lot of uh, the sort of current... Fairly cheap to make uh, horror movies, Multiple but including Oscar Get Out. Yes, yes Get Out pictures, obviously yeah. done brilliantly. Um, so I, I was kind of disappointed it wasn't cleverer. I think I wanted it to be cleverer about the idea of the day resetting and finding different solutions. Mm-hmm. And also, the lead character was remained unsympathetic. She didn't learn. She didn't learn to be a better person in the way that uh, Bill Murray's character does in Groundhog Day, which is what you're expecting her to do until the sort of very last time through mm-hmm. that she finally redeemed herself a little bit. I saw the Groundhog Day musical when it was in London. That was mm. really, really good. Mm-hmm. And it's just been uh, pulled in America because of low ticket sales, mm. which is a, which is a shame because it was uh, Tim Minchin who did Matilda amongst other things. And it was just staged really, really inventively. Mm-hmm. And the guy who plays um, Carl Weathers, is that the name? No, Carl Weathers. So is he's the, from Predator. He's from Predator, isn't he? What's the name of the character in Groundhog Day? I wish it was Carl Weathers. Uh, it should be Carl Weathers, yeah. Where he has to fight Rocket every day. No, mm. that's somebody else. It's Apollo Creed. That's Apollo Creed. <laughs> Played Same by actors. Carl Weathers. Played by yeah. Carl Weathers, yes. Um, but you forget about Bill Murray within the first five minutes of the play, which I think is an achievement, considering he's so synonymous with that role. Phil. Phil. Phil Weathers. No, Phil, Phil is the character name. I thought Phil was yeah. the name of the groundhog. No, that's Puxatoni Phil. Mm. <laughs> For a film that I've seen over and over again, we're surprisingly <laughs> dubious on the facts. <laughs> 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 but uh, yeah, the uh, the musical was brilliant. It's a shame that it didn't do that well in America, but I think it's coming back over here. Mm. Maybe next year or the year after. Well, occasionally musicals do maybe get a second chance in Mel Brooks, the young Frankenstein that yeah. he's doing here in Newcastle. Isn't that a sort of redo? Oh, that's got, um, what you call him, isn't it? The Geordie comedian. Ross um, Noble. Ross Noble. Ross Noble. Yes. Yeah. 
We went to see it um, at the Theatre Royal. It's in the West End now, so it was in Newcastle for a month mm-hmm. before I went to the West End, sort of a, an old school tryout, sort of live rehearsal kind of thing almost. Yeah. And it was really good fun, properly old-fashioned and old school and a little bit sexist in a way that if it wasn't Mel Brooks, you wouldn't get away with it. So resolutely old-fashioned, but very theatrical, and you came out, you felt, you know, you got your, your money's worth. Yeah, the putting on the Ritz number was very well done mm. for a, a, for the stage production. It was what you'd hope they would do with the film version of that and just elevate it even more. Mm. We saw it at the same time, didn't we, Dan? You were... We were in the very same auditorium yes. on the very same night, but was... neither of us saw Mel Brooks. I was, mm-hmm. I was completely besotted with Madeleine Kahn back in the day. <laughs> I think she's the sexiest woman I've ever met. Not met, but uh, would like to have met. Met. Sweet mystery of life. At last, I found you. Is that in? That's Young Frankenstein. Yeah. Yeah. No, but do, do they do that on the stage bit? Mm-hmm, yeah. It's very, very much the film. Is every beat of the film is there? They don't take any wild details with it. It's more like a homage, I suppose, isn't it? Mm-hmm. I've yeah. been to see, uh, lucky enough to see, The Shape of Water. <gasps> Um, Mr. Toro's brand new movie, which has got, is it 13 Oscar nominations? Most, yep. Every single one of them, I think, absolutely deservedly. I think it's one of the best films I've ever seen. Um, It perfectly blends romance with a classic monster story. Uh, Sally Hawkins uh, plays a mute cleaner uh, working for this dodgy corporation. Um, (laughs) Does that mean she cleans mutes? (laughs) (laughs) Yes, she does. She cleans mutes. No, she's mute and she's a cleaner. A lowly Quite cleaner. difficult because they can't tell you where the dirt yeah. is. Uh, who accidentally encounters uh, said thing. I won't give it too much away. Um, and uh, it's beautifully acted. I mean, Sally Hawkins doesn't say anything in the movie, really. Um, uh, and the monster is by, is it, his name was Doug Jones, isn't it? Who's also in Star Trek Discovery playing, is it Saru? Saru? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Saru? Um, plays the monster in it. Uh, absolutely brilliant. Um, it was Abe Sapir in Hellboy. That's right, yeah. Um, yeah, the, the, the cinematography is incredible. The uh, art design is out of this world. It's, it's, it's reminiscent of um, the video game Bioshock. Mm-hmm. Just the aesthetic of the of the world that they're in. It has that kind of feel to it. Um, and the colour palettes are amazing. Um, Del Toro's direction is incredible. The script is out of this world. So beautifully multi-layered. It's unash- unashamedly romantic. Uh, uh, but also very dark and twisted as well. Um, I can't recommend that highly enough. So when it when it comes to your cinema, get straight out and see it. Mm. Have you heard it's a bit of controversy this week with it about um, I can't remember the name unfortunately, but there was a TV movie in the late sixties, early seventies about a woman who befriends a dolphin in a research lab, an intelligent dolphin communicates with it via sign language and helps it escape in a laundry basket and so on, and apparently people are saying that there's, sim- there's a lot of similarities to this TV movie, which Del Toro says he's never seen, and The Shape of Water. Mm. Uh, it, obviously, it's interesting they've just brought this up in the week after it's got the Oscar nominations, mm. whether they're after some money or... Sounds very similar to Free Willy. Mm. Mm, I was very disappointed with that. <laughs> Not what I was expecting. <laughs> oh, God. We didn't get one. Damn you, SeaWorld. <laughs> and finally, Ian Mayer from some, I think he believe he's tied to something, has sent in his, not, not you. <laughs> I, I haven't tied your legs to your chair, don't worry. You will never leave. <laughs> we are recording for 17 days. 
<laughs> no, Ian Mayer cannot be with us today, um, but he has explained why in a clip that he has just sent in based on his recommendations for you. Nerds, I'm so sorry I can't be with you today. I've been travelling with work and I'm kind of stuck at an uh, Antarctic research facility. Oh, it's cold and bleak and full of grumpy men. Uh, but yesterday we found a dog and he's lovely. He's very friendly. He keeps licking my face. Uh, but there's been some personnel issues. Uh, tempers are a little frayed. And long story short, I'm tied to a chair. Uh, a very bearded man keeps trying to give me a blood test, but I, I really, really don't think he's qualified. So uh, what's good and worth talking about? Well, um, I read a good book recently, and as nerds, uh, books are in our purview, and it's a novel called The Exphoria Code. If you Google it, don't Google Euphoria, because that's a different thing. But um, it's a contemporary spy thriller about an MI6 agent called Bridget Sharp, or Bridge, as she calls herself, who specialises in uh, cyber espionage. And it's really, really good. Uh, it's fast-paced, it, it's quick, and it feels sort of grounded and realistic. It's by no means a uh, James Bond kind of spy novel, uh, but there is moderate punching and action. Uh, where I think it really wins out is it paints a very realistic picture of... Um, how military espionage sort of technology uh, works and, and how, like, the development of uh, military technology, uh, what that looks like. And it's kind of, you know, how scary the sort of super-connected internet world is. But, you know, it, it's not slow. It's, it's not laboured. Um, the prose is really sharp. And it's got a kind of winning realism to it. Uh, for example, during a quite tense scene, a bridge, um, as she calls herself, has to do some hackerish stuff, you know, so... She is in the midst of a massive crisis. She gets out a laptop and surrounded by the police. And the first thing she asks for is a cup of tea. Now that's perfect. You know that's more English than James Bond, and that, that's how you respond to a crisis. Now the Exforia Code is written by Anthony Johnston, um, who's a writer whose work I, I know uh, sort of quite well. Uh, he writes loads of comics, uh, hundreds of comics, and uh, he's written for computer games, you know, as, as well as novels like this. Now, he did a great post-apocalyptic uh, comic series called Wasteland that's got a kind of fantasy western vibe to it that's, that's worth checking out. But uh, Anthony's probably best known for a graphic novel called The Coldest City, illustrated by uh, Sam Hart. Now, this was filmed under the name Atomic Blonde, starring uh, Charlie Theron uh, as British agent Lorraine Broughton. Now, uh, the film, I found the film a little confusing, uh, maybe a couple of twists too many, but it was visually stunning and has the best action sequence that was filmed last year by a mile. Uh, towards the end of the film, you'll know it when you see it. Now, Atomic Blonde was directed by David Leach, who's uh, co-directed uh, John Wick, he did a bunch of the action sequences that, and is directing Deadpool 2. Now, he's one of these guys who had like three lives, you know, he's been a professional stuntman, a stunt coordinator for years. And, you know, he was Brad Pitt's stunt double in Troy. How cool is that? Um, a lot of love for stunt performers. Uh, they make geek stuff cooler. And don't you love Charlie's Theron's decision to go full Keanu and recreate herself as an action movie star? You know, with Fury Road, she co-starred in one of the greatest action films of all time. And in Atomic Blonde, she's doing bruising work in these fight scenes. Can you think of another Oscar winner with that kind of career trajectory? You know, like, gone from... Um, you know, award-winning indie stuff to, like, full-on action films. I can't. Now, Atomic Blonde, as I say, I like the film, but I found it a little convoluted. Now, that's not a problem with the graphic novel it's based on, which is less action-packed, but has this kind of solid, grimy, uh, John le Carré vibe to it, um, and beautiful black-and-white artwork. Now, if that kind of thing's your bag, 
There's a prequel graphic novel called The Coldest Winter, this time drawn by another guy, Steve Perkins, but with a, a similarly kind of austere black and white style. Now, for my money, it's a better book. It's real kind of cat and mouse uh, spy tale in Soviet-run Berlin, and well worth seeking out if that's your kind of thing. So that's what's cool and that's good, and I've got to get myself untied from this chair somehow. Uh, later, nerds. All right, time for a brand new feature called Nerd Court. Now, as you can hopefully tell, we all get on exceptionally well and we like most of the same things. But on occasion, we disagree over certain films, certain TV shows. And when that happens, that TV show or that film is going to be brought in front of the Nerd Court. So I'm going to hand over to Judge John to explain the details. Hello, good afternoon and welcome to Nerd Court. I am Judge John, your judge in these proceedings, and I have with me my jury of Peter and Hazel. On trial today is the TV series Lost, which stands accused of being a waste of six years of everyone's time. <laughs> totally unbiased, Judge. A total disappointing mess from start to finish that clearly had no idea where it was going when the writer first pitched it. However, as a neutral judge, I'm here to hear any arguments to the contrary. So, attacking Lost, we have Ian McLaughlin, and defending this <laughs> terrible, terrible series, <laughs> we, <laughs> we have Daniel Watkins. Um, so, we will begin with the opening statement of Ian McLaughlin, who will be attacking the TV series Lost with all the vigour that we expect of... Uh, <laughs> with all the vigour that it deserves. <laughs> I put it to you, Daniel Watkins that you are charged with wantonly and knowingly being a fan of the TV series known as Lost, and that you, Daniel Watkins, are prepared to defend its merits inasmuch that it constitutes a viable and valid entry into the prism of classic sci-fi television. Without holding and without prejudice, I challenge your statement as folly and foolery, and here I stand ready to counter your argument. <gasps> uh, in response, Daniel? Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, if the charge is my fandom of the TV series Lost, then I confess I am guilty. It is a show that I have been gripped by, hooked on and obsessed over like few others, and it has given me many of my favourite ever television moments. I hereby compel the ladies and gentlemen of this jury to hear my defence, as I prove beyond reasonable doubt that it has been unfairly maligned and criticism against it is misguided and unjust. Your Honour, if we may proceed. May I proceed? Uh, you have a piece of evidence to bring in. Uh, if, if your honour pleases, exhibit A. Writing by committee. As with many big-budget series from America, after the first episode or season, a gaggle of writers are brought in to continue the storylines as studios tend to think along the infinite number of monkeys and typewriters line. Usually, there's a series bible, a list of the creator's commandments that ensure continuity is studied through the Noah's story arc. But Lindelof and J.J. Binks never expected last, Lost to last more than one season. And before they could lay down scripture, writers were hired and fired at very near the speed of light to continue the legacy as the studio struggled to cope with the unexpected success on their hands. Panicking, they might lose fans, and under extreme pressure, the writers pulled through more genre excretia at the proverbial fan than a gorilla in captivity hurls turds at visitors. <laughs> Indeed, Lindy Bop himself admitted he had no idea where things were going, and his original vision had been blinded by the executive's knee-jerk demands on the team. 
The series then jumped from horror to fantasy to Cluedo to sci-fi, back to horror, then bouts of timey-wimey, decade-jumping nonsense, and not forgetting a massive dose of a religious iconography that has kept stalwart fans salivating over a mystery that never resolves. How say you? Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, to charge Lost with the crime of writing by committee is to condemn the entire system of operations for any US network TV for much of the past three decades. To be frank, times were not like they are now. The time of the showrunner in the sense we know it today was simply not as prevalent. While Joss Whedon may have overseen Buffy, Angel and Firefly, many of its episodes and storylines were conceived by committee. And would we condemn these shows for that? No, we Goran wouldn't. In fact, I would argue that the notion of the modern showrunner is partly due to the influence of Lost, and in particular Damon Lindelof and Carlton Cuse, paving the way for the likes of Weiss and Benioff on Game of Thrones, or Nolan and Joy on Westworld. While episodes would be written variously, Lindelof and Cuse oversaw overarching elements and knew where they wanted things to generally happen, and more importantly were perceived publicly as being in charge, including their weekly Lost podcast, discussing fan theories and answering questions. Incidentally, one of the first podcasts I ever listened to. Written by committee? Yes, but it was their committee, and to me that means Lost is not guilty of this approach's worst tendencies. The approach they took has been influential in things like Game of Thrones. While George R.R. Martin has been unceremoniously killing off major characters in his books for decades, screen audiences were just not used to seeing supposed protagonists killed off with such frequency, except if they were fans of Lost who were merciless in dispatching their main cast. And it can't be coincidence that the episode with one of the most heartbreaking character deaths in Game of Thrones, spoilers, the one with the door, was directed by Jack Bender, who directed most of Lost's most crucial episodes, including a similarly moving death scene. May I also point out to the jury how right the approach Lost took was by mentioning some of the shows that tried and failed spectacularly to achieve the same ends. Invasion, Flash Forward, Heroes, Alcatraz, although I actually quite liked Alcatraz. <laughs> the fact that Lost survived for its complete run is testament to the fact that the creative pr approach was a success. The only show in my mind who succeeded in this regard is Westworld, and J.J. Abrams has been a producer on both. Admittedly, I did not get Westworld at first. I was confused, didn't know what was going on for the first half of the season, and then I realised it wasn't just a show about robots in a theme park killing humans. It was much, much more than that. Like Lost, which wasn't just about a plane crash, the initial premise was a starting point for something much larger. Incidentally, there's a very good podcast about Westworld as well called Out West, which helps you get through the many, many theories on that. Of course, a single dominating writing voice can be great, like in The West Wing or Black Mirror, but writing by committee can also be a good thing, as seen in the Whedonverse, or standout episodes of Doctor Who like Blink, which was written by Stephen Moffat before he became a showrunner. Additional writing voices means that if a great new character like Ben in Lost catches on, they can keep them around and improve the show with these new elements. Conversely, if something's not working out, it means they can kill someone off, uh, as with Nikki and Paolo, who were two terrible characters introduced in the third series. But, say some, didn't they just make it up as they went along? I think Judge John alluded to this in his introduction. To that I say, so what? I speak to a jury containing several gifted improvisers. The counsel for the prosecution is a master of the art. Are any of you to tell me that making things up as you go along can never be conducive to good storytelling? <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, to be the product of a single mind start to finish with no adaptation along the way is just not workable and the jury must bear this in mind. Polar bear it in mind. 
Uh, I would at this point like to uh, give some guidance to the jury that we are here to discuss Lost and by trying to put the much better TV series Westworld <laughs> into yeah. your mind. He's trying to distract me with Westwing. Trying West to distract you with Westworld and, and the West Wing. Naughty I would like boy. the jury to disregard any series that begin with the word West. <laughs> Uh, I would also like to suggest to Mr Watkins that the suggestion that uh, the likes of Ian can come up with a better story live on stage out of their arse <laughs> than it took six years of heavy plotting may not be your best argument. However, I will let you continue with your next point, Ian. <laughs> Thank you, Your Honour, if you please. Interesting that uh, Mr Watkins mentions the plane crash, uh, which neatly introduces my next point, which is Exhibit B, Your Honour, plot holes. As he said, even in the first season, it was shamefully lacking continuity. An example, if I may, the first episode. After a very promising start and a visceral action scene of cinematic proportions rarely seen on television, a plane falls out of the sky and plummets onto the beach of an unknown island. All is good so far. But as the survivors emerge from the twisted wreckage and the plane engine still throttles like an inferno in the sand, we notice there are actually at least 50 people walking around on the beach, dazed and confused. And suddenly, 30 of them just disappear, <laughs> leaving the core cast. This is just the very beginning of plot holes in this terrible, terrible travesty of a television show. Then, after this, each season ham-fistedly throws away any continuity and canon just to appeal to the masses. It seems there are more huge plot holes in this series than there are holes in a giant's colander. <laughs> the, the phrase, the fans will figure it out for themselves, comes to mind. How say you, Mr Watkins? Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, identifying plot holes is a hallmark of nerdom. All our favourite things have them, from Star Wars to Lord of the Rings to Harry Potter, and Lost is no exception. Why then does the opposing counsel single out Lost for criticism on this count? Simply put, he is not a fan, and for a non-fan, no explanation of these alleged plot holes is sufficient. For the Lost fan, as with any fan of any other nerdy property, no explanation is necessary. But this is not to suggest that things were left unexplained. What many people misunderstand about Lost is that it was first and foremost a fantasy show. While the first season may have been incorrectly marketed as a castaway drama of a bunch of folks who crash-landed on an island, the key thing is, it's a magic island. And once the more fantastical elements came to the forefront, people switched off because it wasn't the show they thought it was. Is this Lost's fault? I say no. It was clear from the beginning that this was no ordinary island. Dead people appearing in front of the living, smoke monsters appearing from nowhere. In any other fantasy programme, the explanation of because magic would be enough, but not for Lost? I hope the jury may see the injustice here. Sometimes having the answers is not what we want, even when we might think it is. We all know the downside to theorising unnecessarily about plot points. We've seen it in these wretched online reactions to The Last Jedi. What happens when the answer you've come up with in your head is not the answer eventually given? The answer is not your answer and must therefore be shit, or a plot hole, or nonsense, or all three. I do not accept this for Star Wars, and I do not accept it for Lost. It didn't need to explain everything to satisfy those parts of the audience who had only disparaged the answers they received, or worse, had already switched off and only returned for the last episode. But the important thing is, it actually did. It attempted to wrap up its plot holes in the final season, and this attempt, valiant though it may have been, contributed to that season being comparatively weak. I do not deny that. But to dismiss a whole show for a few plot holes when so much of its plot was so compelling, I cannot agree, sir. Also, they explained the polar bears in season two, if you've been paying attention. Um, why does the island move? Because magic. 
<laughs> who made the huge four-toed statue? Some people who used to live there. Why does it only have four toes? Because weird. Why is the island a super magnet? Magic. Where did Jacob and Smokey's stepmother come from? The sea. <laughs> who taught Jacob the secrets of the island? Some people who were already living there. How can Richard travel off the island? Because magic. magic. <laughs> it's a fantasy show. Magic, magic. exists. <laughs> if your honour pleases, exhibit J, your honour. Now, bearing in mind that a lot of fans of Lost exclaimed, what the fuck? <laughs> and we've been cheated after the ending. If I may, Mr. Watkins, could I ask you to explain the denouement as you understand it? Perhaps an overview of the entire story arc leading up to this might be useful as well. You've got one minute. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, I will first relay to you the story of my lost fandom. I watched season one, I liked it. It ended with the characters having finally opened the mysterious hatch, peering down and down and down, and I had to know what happened next. As quickly as I could, I watched the first episode of season two, the opening sequence blew my mind, and from there, I devoured everything to do with Lost. And the great moments, the more I got into it, kept coming. Season two is full of them, the season three finale, the season five finale. The more you put into it, the more you got out of it. For people like me, the finale provided great emotional closure for a six-year journey. It was like getting to see all your old friends happy and content. It gave me a warm, fuzzy feeling. But looking back, season six has problems. It's flawed. It's the only season I've never rewatched. The flash sideways, that they call it, is more than a bit crap. And you can kind of disregard that for the inconsequential fluff it is. But there's loads of great stuff, from guest stars like John Hawkes in Three Billboards from Ebbing, Missouri, Alison Janney's in it, they make it Ooh. worth watching. And the episode includes a 50-minute <laughs> epilogue uh, that is immediately satisfying on many levels that the actual series wasn't. I wish they'd used that, but the ending itself is another element of the show fundamentally misunderstood by the opposing council. Like all of Lost, it's intended... Up, Mr. Watkins. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> I will let you continue. Thank you. <laughs> Like all of Lost, the ending is very clearly intended to be open to interpretation. If you take it at face value and find it wanting, you might just need to take it a different way. The finale sequence is curiously tailored towards one character, so to take that as an objective version of what happens to everyone uh, might not be the literal interpretation of what happens. If you want a concrete ending, it's right there in the finale in plain sight. If you want to know what really happened, some of them leave the island, some of them stay on the island, some of them die. The end. Might be boring in comparison, but it does make sense. But for the critics, such as the opposing council, neither ending sufficed, and I expect no ending ever would. At the time, the ending that I got was exactly what I was hoping for. Logic be damned. <laughs> Only a thoroughly dispirited viewer looking for flaws could argue that it was not emotionally satisfying. And if that is the case, you, like I, cannot be objective about this. Besides, the worst finale in TV history is clearly How I Met Your Mother, which, if there was a top ten, would take all ten positions. <laughs> Again, Mr. Watkins, we're not here to discuss How I Met Your Mother. We should be, it's terrible. <laughs> I would like to discuss How I Met Your Mother, but that's an entirely different... <laughs> Objection. <laughs> I am your father. Come. <laughs> Just before we close, uh, Your, your Honour, uh, uh, you didn't really answer my question. I wanted, uh, I wanted a, uh, a one-minute summary of the entire story arc and explanation of the ending. Of course. Uh, some people plane crash onto a magic island. Many people have lived on this island using its various magical properties. The people on the island have been considered worthy of 
not only living there, but taking over the protection of it from outside agencies who want to use its powers for evil. One of them ends up staying on the island, taking on that role. The others, unhappy with the situation, are able to leave if they survive, because many bad people are trying to kill them. Some of them succeed. I rest my case, Your Honour. <laughs> it sounds terrible. <laughs> and, and, but one more thing, though. One more thing. Please, why all of this timey-wimey, jumping-around nonsense, creating enough paradoxes, more paradoxes than going back in time to kill your own father? Funnily enough, I think that does happen. <laughs> I rest my case. <laughs> I am an absolute apologist for Lost's time travelling, and this is for two reasons. One of them is the character of Daniel Faraday, played by Jeremy Davies from Saving Private Ryan, who is one of my favourite TV characters. yet again, trying to associate <laughs> with a much better film or TV series. May I be allowed to continue? You may continue. Mm. So, Daniel Faraday is one of my favourite ever TV characters. Uh, his character was crucial to this element of the show, and if they hadn't had that bit in it, he wouldn't have been in it. And if he hadn't been in it, I wouldn't have enjoyed the show as much as I did. So I can forgive any time-travelling nonsense because of that. Secondly, without the time travel, we'd have never had an episode called The Constant, which is one of my favourite episodes, not just of Lost, but of any TV series. Very emotionally satisfying, tense, gripping. It had everything you could want in an hour-long TV show. And another great character, Desmond. And if there was no time travel, that episode wouldn't happen. And if that episode didn't happen, I would have been sad. Ah. Uh, could we, uh, do either of you have any closing statements? I have a, a, a few, a, uh, one closing statement. Lost is shit. <laughs> <laughs> How say you, Mr. Watkins? I say I have been given a biased judge. <laughs> I stand no hope of acquittal. And yet I continue to defend it, as I know others out there in the pod universe would. Whatever happens, happens, but jury, please save my show from nerd jail. Uh, before the jury retire, um, we've heard the evidence, uh, but before I would like to think about the people involved here. Daniel Watkins has said that Lost is his favourite TV show, that the character of Faraday is his favourite TV character. I can only assume that if Lost is his favourite TV show, Daniel Watkins spent his childhood locked in a room with only a TV unconnected to the wider world and a Lost box set. <laughs> do you want to destroy his hopes and dreams? I think we do. I think we do. <laughs> I think we do. But, uh, is, is, is Lost going to nerd jail? Yes or no, Hazel? Now, I, I am forgetting all of my personal feelings about the TV show Lost, and I have arguments against all of the things you said as well, Dan, but I have to pretend I don't know any of those. Um, I think you both put forward excellent, articulate arguments. Um, Dan, you confused the shit out of me with all your time-travelling stuff. Um, I am going to recommend that Lost should go to Nerd Day. I, I I concur. I think um, I, I personally I watched it about two seasons worth before just deciding it was going into the X Files worthy nonsense of uh, a story arc that just doesn't make sense and wasn't planned from the beginning. And I don't think it ever truly exonerated itself from the guilt of story jail that it should deserve. This is all based on the evidence you've just heard and not your own personal opinion. 
Uh, that didn't sway me <laughs> enough. <laughs> I, I, I don't think there was a, a strong argument against it enough sufficiently. Okay, I'm going to say that I thought Ian made some very good arguments as to why he lost his urge to be in nerd jail. However, I then listened to Daniel's replies, and Daniel is a man I have known and respected a long time, and if Daniel feels that strongly about the show Lost and can defend it, then there must be something there. However, Daniel then shot himself in the foot by <laughs> reminding me of the smoke monster, which is the most ridiculous <laughs> fucking things I ever saw on a TV show ever. Lost is going to Lost Jail, it's unanimous. No jail for Lost. Uh, no, no, may I recommend the sentence? Yes. <laughs> I think you should be taken from this place and put in another place, left there till he's very sorry. <laughs> the bad place. <laughs> I'll be able to travel through time, it'll be fine. <laughs> Thank you, Your Honour. Take him away. <laughs> no. <laughs> okay, so uh, a bit of a running joke uh, for the Nerdfest podcast is that despite it being one of the biggest comic book release releases of all time, none of us have ever felt compelled to watch Justice League. Um, and that inspired us to come up with a new feature called Taking One for the Team. <laughs> <laughs> so um, I, I maintained my principles and I haven't seen it, but uh, Ian, Peter and John took one for the team and watched Justice League. And uh, I'm excited to hear what your thoughts are. Just awful. <laughs> so, so, so bad. Yeah. Like pay, painfully bad. Um, reshoots were incredibly evident. Didn't care about any of the characters. Didn't care about the threat, which seemed like a strange Avengers ripoff. It's a weird. Yes. It was Mother almost, bosses. Almost the same plot line. Yeah. Um, a horrible CGI villain. Joss Whedon-esque banter that didn't fit in with the Zack Snyder slow motion action sequences. Banner Flick looked like he wanted to be there about as much as I wanted to watch it. (laughs) Um, Just, I'm struggling to think of any positive things. Actually, no, Aquaman. um, I enjoyed Aquaman. He, the character, Jason Momoa, the, Mm. the actor that played him, Seemed to be the only one enjoying himself and having a silly comic book movie. But even there, I saw Mama on a uh, Graham Norton chat show about two weeks previously, and he came across brilliantly well. Yeah. Know, very charismatic, a really strong and larger than life character. Mm. And in a way, he came across better in the chat show than I think he did in the movie. Yeah. So you think it's just mm. his character as a person yeah, bringing that energy exactly. to the role? The Aquan uh, spin off is coming out later this year. Isn't mm-hmm. it? Yeah. And hopefully, hopefully it'll be good. I it's interesting that for okay, years the idea of an Aquaman film was a joke on Entourage. Yeah. I was thinking, like, what could be the worst superhero movie? So they had James Cameron directing Aquaman, and now it's a <laughs> now it's reality. a real thing. Yes, mm-hmm. apart from <clears throat> apart from James Cameron, obviously. But, Ian, um, what did you think? I thought um, generally it was a massive pile of batshit. <laughs> <laughs> Just, it, it just, I didn't care about any of them. I mean, and I love Wonder Woman. I love Gal Gadot as well. Yeah. And like John said, she looked like she didn't want to be there. Uh, every, every, all the action scenes were a bit half-arsed. They, they, you know, they weren't mm-hmm. really. You never felt like they were in, in peril at all. Um, the too, way too much slow motion. Um, yeah, and they're uh, trying to lighten the tone, but doing it very, very poorly. 
You could just tell the bits that have been stuck in yeah. to lighten the tone. Yeah. And it was so obvious that, it, that they CGI'd out his moustache as well. I mean, it was ridiculous. <laughs> Big flat lip he's got in the front. Henry Cavill. <laughs> yeah. Was he, he was filming something. What was he Mission filming? Impossible Mission Impossible Six. Right. Yes. Yeah. So he had to have a moustache. Mm-hmm. So they CGI'd yeah. it, it out. Yeah, because Mission Impossible 6 had to go on a six-month hiatus because of the Tom Cruise breaking ankle um, thing. Right. So I think the timelines clashed with Justice League. So, yeah, they had to uh, Photoshop mm-hmm. it out and apparently did not work. Mm-hmm. I think it's also the movie with the most incompetent green screening stuff I've mm. ever seen in a big mm-hmm. movie. And, and this is for what was... Is actually the second most expensive movie ever made for three hundred really? million dollars. Yeah, where did it go? <sighs> well, in stodgy action scenes, yeah. apparently, mainly. What do you think's next for DC? Where do they go from here? How do they well, pick take it, it out to the backyard and shoot it? <laughs> I think I think they should what, 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 stop and start again. What have they got left? Um, Aquaman later this year. Wonder Woman sequel. They're making a Flash movie. They didn't, aren't they doing Shazam as well and Green Lantern? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Green, uh, Green Lantern Shazam's back. 2019. Green Lantern Corporation, I think it is. Because mm. is if Ryan Lantern Reynolds can't make that work, I don't know who can. Wonder Woman and Shazam are both 2019. Mm-hmm. They're not this year. I was quite disappointed going back to Wonder Woman coming out and being like this feminist, empowering, mm-hmm. female-led film. Now we went back to kind of leaving shots of Gal Gadot's arse in the costume. Gal Gadot. Gal in the costume. And that kind yeah, of I, male I, gaze, very... Uh, I, I've noticed on that, mm. there, were, there were two shots and you just go, oh, that, yeah, yeah. That, that just seemed a bit much, mm-hmm. a, a bit yeah, voyeuristic. A bit, so, yeah, a bit voyeuristic, a bit, bit eye candy. I mean, just trying to appeal yeah. to everyone at the same time, weren't they? Well, whereas the one movie itself is fantastic mm-hmm. um, um, representation of mm-hmm. a woman... And her strength, uh, and still allowing her to be beautiful at the same time, yeah. but without that being the main thing. Yeah. Well, she has got a lovely ass. <laughs> <laughs> so that's all right. Then. There's a bit where she's um, making a sculpture. She's um, a sculpture renovator. What, what the that's term right, is? Yeah, she's one of those Louvre, she? Yeah, right. and she's working with a chisel. Um, and mud and everything, restoring this sculpture whilst wearing. Like a evening dress for no no apparent reason other than it looks quite good. Uh, it's um, I'm just trying to think of anything nice to say about. It. Apparently, there was an edict that it had to be under two hours, but so there was a lot cut out. So good. characters' motivations just change from scene to scene. So you've got Cyborg, who is a mopey teenager whose dad made him into a robot after a car accident what I can tell, but he keeps enhancing himself, uh, as teenagers tend to do. <laughs> Is that what they call it these days? <laughs> yeah. he, he, he wakes up and he's enhanced himself and he doesn't know what his new abilities are. Um, and he has this big thing where he's a, like a, a mopey teenager who doesn't want to leave his apartment and he has a meeting with Wonder Woman and he goes, I'm not going to help you, I'm just here for myself. And then the next scene, it just appears and they go, oh, what are you doing? Just, I changed my mind. And there's <laughs> no... Oh there's also the completely pointless plot with the Russian family who we keep cutting back to. And it's only because there's a, a scene at the end where someone makes the decision to go and save them as opposed to... You know, oh yes, I'd, of other I'd, people. I'd, I'd forgotten about that. Yeah, well, because they they just don't factor on anything. Mm. It's, I think it's supposed to show the sort of ordinary man in the street and how they relate to the events around them. 
but it just fails. I liked how they brought um, Superman back, and we'll steal, we'll steal a, a line from uh, from my partner here. And she said they brought him back with a nice bath bomb. <laughs> it seems to be like they just put him in some hot water and put some bits in there, and then he he comes back and he comes back and he's very very angry, wants to destroy all of them, and then he meets Lois Lane and that cheers him up again, and then suddenly he's back on their side, having completely forgiven Batman for more or less leading to his death in the previous film. Just, again, it, it feels like there's a lot of in-between emotional scenes where char- characters have gone from one emotional point to another and have cut out to get it down to length that journey, so they just jump around massively in characterization for no reason. But don't let us put you off. No! Um... <laughs> Oh, sorry, there was, there was also, just after Clark's dug, dug up, there's a line where Lois says he smells good, which is yes. a <laughs> dug up from the ground. All right, so uh, what would you give it out of ten? Uh, I would give it minus 1,427. I think you're being too kind. <laughs> okay, I'll give it one. Okay, you give it one. I would give it three out of ten for Aquaman and Gal Gadot trying to do the best she can. And then I'm going to take four of those three away for Ben Affleck. Just so minus one the, again. <laughs> the look of desperation, please get me off this set in his eyes. The realisation that he's made a massive mistake, mm-hmm. that's probably going to kill his career again. Because uh, he had plans to do a standalone Batman movie, but I think he those have been shelved. He, he, he was going to direct it. He was going to write and direct it. And they said he didn't want to direct it because he didn't want to direct a script he wasn't happy with. But he wrote. But the he wrote the script. Yeah, Mike Myers. Mike Myers did this years and years ago, um, which is why he ended up doing Shrek. Bizarrely enough, he got paid twenty million to write and star in a film about a German film critic, I think, which was a Saturday Night Live character. And about a couple of weeks before shooting, he said he didn't want to make the film because he didn't like the script. And people pointed out, Mike, you you wrote this script, so he ended up. Suing, being sued by the studio and trapped in litigation for ages. And in the end, Steven Spielberg got him out of the litigation um, in return for him doing Shrek for DreamWorks. Mm. Not interesting, but true. I should have said that for a film buff or film bluff. (laughs) (laughs) I'll take it. No fear of you going to see it. Um, Well, I didn't make it through Batman vs Superman. I watched 20 minutes and turned it off. Um, so probably not, yeah, unless I'm probably. very drunk. Um, well, if yeah. it comes out on VHS. On VHS, okay. Cool, yeah. So that was uh, taking one for the team. If you have any uh, suggestions of any films that uh, we should watch as part of this feature, it can be a rewatch or it can be any new films that uh, are critically panned, uh, get, us, get in touch on our Twitter feed at Nerdfest UK. And we will take one for the team for you. <laughs> and that brings us to the end of another Nerdfest podcast. Hope you've enjoyed yourselves. Um, I have. I don't know about anyone else. Shit. You know, like oh, shit. <laughs> okay. All right. Sunday afternoon, is it? Nothing better to do. <laughs> We're all hungover anyway. So. <laughs> um, if you'd like to get involved uh, in our nerdy discussions on social media, we would love you to. We're at Nerdfest UK on Twitter and Facebook. Uh, but in the meantime, you have been listening to. Ian McLaughlin, Dan Watkins, Peter Johnson, John Farber, and I'm Hazel Burton. Thank you very much for listening, and we'll see you soon. Bye. 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 Bye.
tell me what I can't do. 